half a decade into a life sentence at a maximum security prison in Pennsylvania, a young man named Luis Suave Gonzalez got himself a radio. It only picked up two stations. One of them happened to be NPR. And this night in particular, Suave struggled to fall back asleep after the nightly 3 a.m. count. Then he heard the voice of one of the correspondents, a woman, a Latina. Her name was Maria Hinojosa. And this was the first time that Suave had ever heard someone like him on the radio. He thought, one day I'd like to meet her. At that moment, Suave, who was told he would die in prison, had no idea just how intertwined their lives would become over the next three decades. And today, Snapchat and Spotlight, it's on a new series called Suave from Futuro Studios and PRX. It focuses on Suave, one of thousands of juveniles sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and the Supreme Court decision that changed their lives. The story unfolds in some of the harshest conditions possible, and sensitive listeners should note it does contain references to both violence and to sexual assault. The series traces Suave's incarceration, his redemption, and an unusual relationship between a journalist and a source. I can't wait for you to hear the first episode right here, right now. Snapchat and Spotlight. Suave. What's going on? Just talk to me. Suave, I'm talking to you. What is going on? I'm cool. Suave, forget that Maggie's in the room. Forget that I'm Maggie's... I'm cool, I'm cool. I'm serious. I'm cool. I'm just... Yeah, but just tell me what just happened. <laughs> I never thought I'd be locked up in a room like this again. <laughs> I'm cool. I know you're cool, sweetie. You're out of prison. I just had a little flashback. Okay. It's just like, it's too real. It's too real. It's like, damn. The reality is, I had a life sentence. There's no parole in the state of Pennsylvania for lifers. When you're a lifer, then they tell you, where do you want your body sent to when you die? So you got to mentally prepare for the worst. But I made it. I made it out, so I'm good. You're making me cry, actually. That's you know, the, all. the fact that you're having this reaction to this room, I mean, it's just a studio. It's a dark little, you know, constructed studio. And, like, the both of us are crying about a friggin' studio. Well, to most people, it's probably a studio. But to me, it's like, it's a space where I, I spend a portion of my life in. The thing is, what you don't know, Suave, is that it was actually in this room, right? In this studio where you would call... And I'd come running in, and we'd record. You know, I'd hold the phone oh. up here, right here. So it was in this room that I had hundreds of phone calls with you. Wow, I didn't know that. From Futuro Studios and PRX, this is Suave, a podcast about juveniles sentenced to die in prison told through one man's journey. I'm Maggie Freeling. David Luis Suave Gonzalez was sentenced to mandatory life in prison without parole for a crime committed when he was 17 years old. He was found guilty of first-degree homicide. This is his story of incarceration, redemption, and an unusual relationship between a journalist and a man convicted of murder. So Maria, back in 1993, when you and Suave first met, who were you? 
All right. So I was much younger. (laughs) I was recently married. I was a budding national correspondent at NPR. I'm Maria Hinojosa reporting. And I was basically creating a name for myself in doing, you know, people called it urban reporting, but I was trying to kind of correct the narrative of what was happening in these communities that were really overlooked. So today you're the host of the public radio show Latino USA, and you're a former CNN and PBS correspondent. And in some ways, Suave kind of knew you before you ever met. The only station that would come on was NPR radio and Power 99. Philly's Power 99. So I listened to that radio like for two years, every day, six o'clock in the morning. So one day I heard this lady. NPR's Maria Inahosa reports. And I was like, oh, they got a Latina on the radio. So they had a graduation coming up. And the old principal here said, we need somebody to come speak as the guest speaker. So I said, look, I just heard this lady on the radio. I think she's the first Latina on NPR. Y'all need to bring her up here. She's about education. They contacted her. They brought her up here. I told the principal, I need to go. I got to meet this lady, right? He was like, why? I said, because I hear her every morning. I got to see if she's six foot or five foot. And at that time, she was a little shorter. So you give the graduation talk at Greaterford Prison, and then Suave walks up to you, a half-smoked joint still in his pocket. I remember him just saying, I'm from New York. And I was like, yeah, what's up? He said, so I'm in here for life. I'm in here for life. What should I do? What can I do? And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm going to have a source inside a prison. I'm going to have somebody who... I mean, sadly, the truth is, he's going to be here for the rest of his life. But I'm going to have somebody who's going to be able to tell me what's going on in a maximum security men's prison. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know if there's going to be a story here for me. But at least I've got a source. And I was doing a story about how jail had become a rite of passage for men of all races. It was the first story you did on Suave in the 90s, and you call him by his first name. David is a member of a prison group called Lifers Incorporated. Penitentiaries to me was a place where you could become a man, get big, pump a little weight, come back out, the rumors want you because you've been in jail, get a couple of tattoos. That's the way I looked at it. Now, David will be a prisoner for the rest of his life. So during our very first meeting, I said to him, well, if you're in here for life... You have to be a source. You have to tell me what's going on. But the very last word she said, you become the voice for the voiceless. I was like, dang, why am I letting this lady mess my heart up? That's what I said. (laughs) She's messing up my heart. She was on point with what she was saying. Suave says he flushed his weed after that meeting. Until then, he kept doing and selling drugs in prison, just like he had on the outside. And Maria, you and Suave kept in touch over the years. Hey, Suave. Suave, is it okay if I record this conversation? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I guess they record every single phone call that that you ever make, right? (laughs) It won't be the first time. For more than two decades, you took phone calls from Suave. You wrote letters and sent cards. So listen, we're, we're recording now. Um, okay. I'm actually eating my breakfast because I haven't eaten all morning. But um, oh. what was your day like today? Oh, my day, it was good. I went out to the yard at 7 o'clock in the morning. 
Okay, so I want to step back for a second. For the last several years, I was one of Maria's producers on her public radio show. But because of what's about to happen in this story, for the last two years, I've been sorting through hundreds of phone calls and letters between her and Suave. I got to know both of them pretty well. Why are you working out so hard right now? Well, really, I started working out because health issues, a friend of mine introduced me to the vegan life. And I said, let me try that. And I liked it. So I lost a couple of pounds. And Maria, you also visited and recorded Suave in prison. This is C Block. Sir, Suave is in here? Yeah, he's on this. He houses on this block. So, Suave, when you first got here in 1988, being sentenced to life, what were you thinking then as the juvenile? At the time, they didn't meant nothing. You know, it hit me almost 10 years later that I have a life sentence, that I'm going to die in prison. That's when it hit me because I was illiterate. I really didn't understand the process. This is Maria and a producer talking to Suave during a visit to Greaterford Prison in 2014. I learned how to read and write to write Maria from prison. Just so we're clear, you're saying that you had been raised in the United States of America going to school. You're saying you did not know how to read or write? No, I didn't know how you to read or write. You knew something. You knew... No, I knew how to write my name. When I came to prison, I knew how to write my name. That's it. it took me seven times to get a GED. It's almost six years. And in my seventh trial, I got it. Once I got that, college program became available. I signed up. But before all of this, Suave says he was on a death mission. I can honestly tell you today that if I would have never met Maria, I probably would have been dead in prison. Probably would have been dead. He was one of the guys in the prison who was basically wreaking a bit of havoc, you know. And he's talked about it now, having just really not appreciating life. I came in with an IQ of 56. The state of New York, on paper, said, Mr. Gonzalez is mentally retarded. That's what they said on paper. And I believed that for many years. So everything I did in my life was based on retarded anyway. Who cares? If anything, I wish I would have met her when I was home. And she would have told me the words. So you could be the voice for somebody, for the voiceless. If you ask me who's your heroes, I would say my mother, Maria, and God. This wasn't the traditional journalist-source relationship. I mean, there were the Christmas cards. She sent Christmas cards, and she sent cards, and she wrote. Maria, do journalists send their sources Christmas cards? So I actually think that this is, um, this is a much broader question for me. To me, the role of the journalist is not only to uncover, you know, these stories, but actually, there is a tool that we as journalists can use, which is our humanity. That if you give humanity, you're going to get it back. And I guess I kind of intuitively understood what it means to get a, a Christmas card. Um, and I'm a Christmas card lady. I mean, I learned that from my mom. Why did you stay in touch with him? If I wasn't going to be reporting on him? Like, why did you care if he talked to you or not? There's so many people 
you meet and you could stay in touch with, why Suave in particular? That's an interesting question. I mean, I I, I guess in the back of my mind, I always wondered, is something going to happen at Greaterford Prison where there's going to be some kind of a riot or something? And I'm going to be the one that's like, I have this source, you know? And the way we spoke was like, you're, you know, you're on the inside. Be my eyes and ears. Letting you know, I haven't forgotten about you as a human being and as a source. But at a certain point, you actually start talking to Suave about your own life. And then this is when you even said you first felt like you crossed a line. And so do you think at that point you were feeling he was more than just a source? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, that's a really fascinating question. I even remember it was, um, I was standing by my little succulent garden on my windows and Suave called and I was like a, I was a, des- I mean, I was an emotional basket case. Um, You know, my father, my cousin, you know, my best friend, they all died all around the same time in the same year. Right. And so this was 2015, the year all this happened. So I just remember, oh my God, I remember that I started crying, but I guess he asked, you know, how you doing? And I said, well, truth be told, uh, this is a really difficult time. And, you know, I was really just an emotional wreck. I remember kind of hanging up and just being like, God, what kind of an asshole are you? Like, oh, it. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is this definitely stood out as a conversation where I was like, what just happened here? Like, this feels really weird. That you told Suave about your life. Claro. And that I was telling him about suffering. This man is behind prison bars for life. And I'm talking about my suffering. Please give me a break. Like, how dare you? And, um, And the next thing I knew, I get this letter from Suave. And I open it up, and it's a card, and it's signed by, I don't know, like 25 men? You know, dear Maria, keep your spirits up. Now all you've got all these men who are wearing fucking jumpsuits, you know, and living in little cells, and they're writing you a note? That card, I put it on my succulent garden, and I would look at it. I would look at it, and I just, ugh. Not everybody in prison has a relationship with somebody for 20-something years that when you call, always took your phone calls. You know, the reality is when you're in prison, people forget about you. Family members forget about you. They're the first ones. I got a twin sister, and my twin sister never sent me a birthday card in the years I was in prison. We'll be right back. The Snap Judgment Suave Spotlight returns in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Snap Judgment Suave Spotlight. Already in progress. We're back. 
And when we left off, Suave had been in prison for nearly 30 years of his life, incarcerated at age 17. And to understand how Suave and other kids got put away for life, we need to go back, back to the 1980s. Chains and medallions, Kangol hats, Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bombada, and Run DMC blasting on the radio. And a crime wave, exacerbated by the crack epidemic, hit cities across the country. Crack is now sweeping New York. Justice Department officials now say there is a direct link between crime and cocaine. Evidence of heavy money and heavy, violent drug traffic is all around. Caught up in the crosshairs were juveniles. Children and teenagers living in low-income neighborhoods, dodging daily violence. The gangbangers are the role model for these children in this neighborhood. Kids as young as 12 years old carry beepers. They're connected to drug dealers with mobile phones who call them to make deliveries of crack cocaine. So politicians in the 80s under the Reagan administration wanted to look like they were doing something about crime. So they tighten sentencing laws in two ways that really matter for us. First, some state legislatures made it legal to prosecute children as adults. The execution of these policies disproportionately affected kids of color. And then Congress passed mandatory minimum sentencing for a whole bunch of crimes at the federal level. And many states followed suit. That meant that you committed such and such a crime. This crime falls under the, you know, crime code A, B, C, D, number 54621. And therefore, you will be sentenced to a minimum of 10 years, non-negotiable. So judges that used to be able to look at a particular crime, look at the person and say, you know, I'm going to give you another shot. This is your first crime or maybe it's your second time. You know, no. Now there were mandatory minimums. By the 90s, these young kids committing crimes were given a name, and it caught on across political parties, including politicians like Hillary Clinton. Super predators, no conscience, no empathy. Tens of thousands of them. And Joe Biden. Born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing. And all of this was really based on this quote-unquote perceived menace of young men of color. This was very racially motivated. Black men, Latino men, were, they were now labeled the super predators. And there was an added element, which is, we're going to treat them like adults. They're so scary. The crimes that they're committing are so scary that we've got we've to treat them like adults. You could be as young as 11 years old and committed uh, a murder, and you would be treated the same as if you were 40 years old. And that's just shocking. These harsh sentences helped drive the mass incarceration crisis that we see today. And so in 1986, at 17, Suave was charged with first-degree homicide and was sentenced to the mandatory minimum of life without parole. And for decades, Maria, this is all you knew about Suave. And I'm wondering why, for all of these years, didn't you ask Suave what his crime was? I don't, I mean, I know that it's hard for people to kind of get that into their heads. 
it's like, hey, Maggie, what's the worst thing you ever did in your life? People on the outside are obsessed with the crime. People on the inside are figuring out how to live. So all you knew was he's in for homicide. What I knew was a juvenile was murdered by another juvenile and that Suave was in for life and that it was a horrible tragedy. That child is never coming back. And one of the reasons why I think Suave ended up actually trusting me all of these years was because the code of prison is that you don't spend all your time talking about that. Years go by, and then on June 25th, 2012, everything changed for juvenile lifers. Case 10-9646, Miller versus Alabama. The Supreme Court made a ruling. You can't sentence kids to mandatory life without parole. Their brains are different, and they can't be held responsible the way adults are. Wow, this is crazy that the Supreme Court just said this can no longer happen. And of course, the question was, so what does this mean for you, Suave? And it was just not clear. The Supreme Court decision did not say anything about what should happen to the thousands of lifers already in prison for crimes they committed as kids. But it did bring hope. I can't even sleep. I haven't had a good night sleep since 2012 because we all know that technically they're holding us under a sentence that no longer is valid. Right, because states like Pennsylvania actually resisted applying this. You know, there was a lot of challenges popping up across the country. So then in 2014, we get Montgomery versus Louisiana. Right. So basically, Montgomery versus Louisiana, it's like the next step in the Supreme Court case. What about all the juveniles who are already in prison, sentenced to life without parole? What do we do with them? The case is named after 73-year-old Henry Montgomery. Henry Montgomery had been incarcerated at Angola, the infamous Louisiana State Penitentiary, since 1963, when he was 17 years old. So he petitions the Supreme Court. Basically, his case is saying he's a model member of the prison community. And so his lawyers asked the court to make life without parole unconstitutional for juveniles who are already in prison. And so make it apply retroactively to people just like him and like Suave. And so the Montgomery decision comes down in 2016. They come out with a decision that says, we want to reopen these cases. These kids who have been sentenced to life without parole as children, who may now be grown men, those cases need to be looked at again. And it was just like, oh my God, what just happened? Everybody's going crazy in here. I'm happy. I feel like I were on my shoulders. I know we ain't scored a touchdown yet, but we right there. We at the line. Slowly but surely, inmates sentenced to life without parole for crimes they committed as juveniles are getting a second shot. It's all because of a Supreme Court ruling that is having a big impact right here in our area. And so during this time, there were a lot of questions. Most juveniles serving life without parole were convicted of homicide or violent crimes. How would people respond to them being released back to the community? Even if they had reformed, would they be able to remain out of trouble? Would they adjust to life outside when they were always expected to die in prison? How would they start over? 
I know this one guy that's been here 65 years. He's been in jail 65 years since he was 15. And all he know is prison. Don't know nothing about the world. Don't know how to use a phone that they got on the block to call your family. So we're talking about people that could potentially be leaving prison. How you going to deal with them? How you going to integrate somebody back into a community that's been out the community for 45 years, 50 years, 60 years? This is a call from Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution, Greaterford. Swabby? Yes. Hi. You called and you said you had some news yesterday and then I didn't hear from you. So what's going on? Oh, man, a lot. First, I'm still alive. I'm still kicking it. <laughs> That's the best news. I'm still, I'm still raising hell. <laughs> well, no, um, I just wanted to inform you that Friday, last Friday, they just granted the first four juvenile lifers parole. Wow. <laughs> Exclusive. The first juvenile lifer in Philadelphia released from prison after spending 43 years behind bars. There was now a precedent. Four men who'd been given mandatory life sentences as kids, they had their cases reopened and they'd been resentenced and released on parole. But there was no guarantee this would happen for Suave. The Supreme Court ruling didn't say life sentences weren't okay. It just said if a life sentence was the mandatory sentence when it was handed down to you as a kid, then your sentence needed a second look. Suave could still be evaluated by the judge and resentenced to life again. But he needed a court date to know, and months were passing. And he was watching other juvenile lifers get released. It's a happy day for Haywood Red Dog for now. A North Philadelphia man is free today after spending nearly 50 years behind bars for his part in a crime he committed as a teenager. Oh my God. Okay, here we go. And so 2016 turns into 2017. Suave. Oh, good morning. Yeah, I'm going to give you the latest. With the time, with the amount of time that, that um, I have in, I should have been resented. What do you think is behind the reason why they're, del- you know, not getting to your case? Well, with me, what's happening is that they say that it takes time because I have too much of certificates, too many programs that they have to go and investigate me to show they, they were real programs. Oh, okay, wait a second, wait a second. Are you saying that you're having to stay in longer in prison because of the fact that you've done so many good things in your time yes, in prison that, 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 and they have to go, they have to make sure it's true so your file is bigger yes. and that's why it's taking longer? Oh my God, this is, what? <laughs> All right, well, this is the first time in a while that I've heard you, like, really frustrated. It's just, it gets a little uh, uh, crazy when you see a guy that just sat here for 25 years playing handball and don't have nothing going to court, getting resentenced and seeing parole. You know, and plus, in my mind, you know what I keep telling me? One of these dudes is going to go out and mess up. And then we all that's still here going to pay for it. 
Oh, because you're afraid that something's going to happen that's going to make this all go away. Maria, check this out. You cannot let a whole bunch of guys out that haven't been through treatment, that haven't had nothing but handball and basketball straight home. You can't do that. That's like putting me in the jungle. You know, you're telling me that because I got over 300 certificates that you need to investigate all of them? best-case scenario, Suave knew there would be many things to worry about if freedom came. And deep down, he also knew he wasn't prepared for life on the outside. Sure, he'd done all of these great things in prison, but he'd spent three decades living like he was never going to see the outside. And so the anxiety of what was to come went on and on for a while. Who's calling from? Louis Suave Gonzalez, an inmate at a state correctional institution at Greaterford. Hey, Suave. Hey, It's May 8th, right? May 8th. So it's um, it's Tuesday, June 6th. Hi, Suave. So what happened? You were going to call me this morning. So it, oh, it, oh, oh. it's too... Oh, no, it was, it, it's... I just want to tell you, it was, it was really nothing. You know, that we should hear something in the next few weeks. Oh, man, it's like torture slowly. And then finally. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. Hello, hello. Hello, Mari, how are you doing this morning? Suave, it is Friday, June 9th at 1044 in the morning. What's going on? I thought we were going to talk at 2. What happened? I wanted to let you know that the judge told the lawyer this morning, oh, we don't have to wait no longer. June 26th, 17 days from today, we're bringing him to court. So he could go see parole in July. What? <laughs> so it, it's like it's like totally not a normal day for you in prison after thirty years. Today is. No. And once, okay, I'm just taking a deep breath. And I bought some clothes. What do you and mean? My lawyer don't think I need clothes. He says it's only going to be like a forty-five minute process. I said, well, guess what? I'm tired of wearing browns for 31 years. So uh, I, I bought me some clothes, some street clothes, because I leave for 40 minutes. I want to I I I feel like I belong. And, and last night, you won't even imagine, I had a dream with Chinese food, like that I was eating Chinese food. <laughs> that was just a dream. <laughs> what, what were you eating? Egg roll and some pork fried rice. And then I woke up. Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. And there you have it. Another phone call, another conversation cut off in the middle. Okay. So, right before Suave's hearing, you get an unexpected phone call from him. Hey, Suave. Hey, Maria, how you doing? My lawyer, my lawyer asked me to ask you a question. Okay. And he wanted to know if you could say a few words on my behalf. I'm sorry, about what? The lawyer wanted to know if you could say a few words on my behalf on my court hearing. Because the judge wanted to hear from four or five of my closest friends. 
Your lawyer is asking me to speak on your behalf in court in Philadelphia on June 26th? Yes. Um, I, the only hesitation that you hear in my voice that this raises a couple of issues for us because that's never happened to me in my life, in my career, and I'm happy to do it. But I need to make sure that my team is also okay with it because it's not something that journalists normally do. And part of her struggle, Maria realized she needed to know something. Can you tell me your victim's name and how old he was? My victim's name was um, Danny Martinez. And he was 13 years old. Oh, my God. Wow. Coming up on this season of Suave. And I went after him with with a toothbrush and a razor and cut him like 32 times. Suave evaluates his life. When I was cutting him, you know what I saw? I saw my father doing that shit to my mom. We set out to find the truth behind the story of his crime. He's following us. Don't look, don't look, don't look. Shit. Well, clearly he lives at that house. So we should hurry the fuck up and get out of here. And meet a devastating twist that no one expected. Suave is a production of Futuro Studios and distributed by PRX. It's produced by me, Maggie Freeling, and Julieta Martinelli. Additional field reporting by Aaron Moselle, Michael Simon Johnson, Zoe Malik, and Zakia Gibbons. We are edited by Audrey Quinn. Our executive editor is Marlon Bishop. Our director of production and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Maria Inahosa is the executive producer. Our fact-checker is Amy Tardiff. Original music from Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura. Production help from Lita Halwell, Juan Diego Ramirez, Maya Cueva, and Sam Burnitz. Special thanks to Marsha Levick at the Juvenile Law Center, David Santi, Suave's lawyer, Julia Kwamia, who voiced Sharon Benjamin, Rob Moriera, who voiced Suave, Shannon Atala, Jill Settlemeyer, and Claire Fitzpatrick. David Bohm, our private investigator, Jody Kent, Karma Almusa, and Heather Renwick at Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Support for this podcast is provided by the Art for Justice Fund, a special project of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors and the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. When we tell you, Snappers, that's Suave from Futuro Studios and PRX. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Peace out from Snap Judgment. One love.